come back together, we continue looking at the, the book of Acts, and it's, it's challenging in preaching through this in certain ways because there is a repetitiveness to the stories. Luke is reinforcing the fact that certain changes are happening and that the disciples are regularly coming in contact with the same opposition time and time again and that there's a process of understanding what is actually beginning to happen. Remember, we're talking about Acts in the context of this being a revolution. There is the revolution of the kingdom of God entering into the world. And the first place that it enters uh, after Pentecost is into this discussion about a new temple being created. And so Jesus had talked about in his ministry and Luke uh, in his gospel really uh, promotes and, and puts it center that Jesus is going to establish a new temple, that he, uh, all of the language of tear it down and build it up in three days and all of that important imagery of a new living temple being created, uh, being built and founded by Christ's work, connected by the Holy Spirit, pervades this work. And so in the early parts of Luke, I'm sorry, Luke, Acts, really up until chapter 9, what we see is the church in Jerusalem, establishing itself as a new temple. And we've seen temple-like activity. We uh, saw the fact that the presence of God in the rather terrifying passage at the beginning of chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira is one in which it is the holiness of God is so present that we saw an instance much like was seen in the Old Testament where to enter the holiness of God and to do so in a way that was, well, poorly thought through, has real consequences. And we've seen the power of the temple to heal and to unite. We've seen the disciples healing so many and the acclaim of the kingdom moving forward. And so we have the otherness of God, which is real and powerful and nothing to be made light of. And we have the grace and the life of God being poured out in the lives of those surrounding it. And so we have this, this change. Significant, significant change. And people are reacting and responding to that change. This morning, I'm going to read a little bit more than is in your worship folder. I'm actually going to start at the beginning of this narrative in chapter 7, uh, sorry, verse 17, uh, and read through the text that you have in your worship folder. Just note to self, I'll be reading NIV. There will be some uh, vocabulary differences between my reading and, and what's in your worship folder. But hear now God's word. Then the high priests... And his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the door of the jail and brought them out. Go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people the full message of the new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts and they, as they'd been told, and began to teach the people. When the high priests and the associates arrived, they called, uh, the, called the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported, We found the jail securely locked with guards standing at the door, but when we opened, we found no one inside. 
On hearing the report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were puzzled, understandably, wondering uh, what, the, what was to come of this. Then someone came and said, Look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the captain went with the officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared the people would stone them. Having brought the apostles, they made them appear before the Sanhedrin to, uh, and to be questioned by the priests. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our Father raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him to his own right hand as Prince and Savior, that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. We are witnesses of, this, of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey Him. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed the men of Israel, Consider carefully what you intend to do with these men. Some time ago Thaddeus appeared, claiming to be somebody. And about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed and his followers dispersed. And it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed and his followers were scattered. Therefore... In the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For their purpose or activity, if it's of human origin, will fail. But if it is from God, you will not, want, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourself fighting against God. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day, the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Lord, you speak through narrative in time and space. You speak to your power to move and effect that your kingdom might grow. And we pray this morning that as we look into this story, that we might be reminded of the God we serve, that we might be encouraged by what it means to be changed. Changed by our lives with one another, our lives with you, our lives in the Holy Spirit. And we pray, Lord, that what is said this morning would be useful for the building up of your people and whatever is untrue. May those words quickly be forgotten. In Christ's name, amen. So many of you will know, of course, uh, Bob Dylan's uh, old song about the times they are a-changing. 
And there is a reality in which at that season, that was a very unnerving notion, right? The country's coming out of what seemed to be a fairly stable time in the 50s, and there are significant changes happening in the culture. You've got a major shift uh, relating to interaction with African Americans in the country, particularly in the South. There's the rise of a feminist movement and uh, women asserting themselves in uh, work and in uh, life. There are all kinds of massive social culture changes. We're still trying to figure out how do we do suburbia. We're trying to figure out how we do uh, marriage and family in this new world where single family incomes can function and so much is changing. And what we thought may have been very idyllic seems to have been somewhat unstable. And you have the late 60s. You've got the tragedy and the confusion of Vietnam. You have so much that's going on in that time period. And the change that's happening is unnerving. Unnerving to a great number of people in our society. Mostly those who were kind of happy with the way things were. Those who didn't understand why things had to change. And those who, to some degree, are just fairly averse to change in general. Now, I don't know and suggest that uh, all the things that Bob predicted or wanted to see changed should have been changed. But what we do know is when we look at a text like this, there is something fundamental about the reality of the need for change. That things are never okay the way they are because of sin, because of death, because of the brokenness of humanity. There is no place in which the kingdom of God would arrive and say, well, there's nothing to change here. Things are just fine the way they are. Or any notion that this side of glory, we will ever get to a point where there is not a need for the work of the Holy Spirit. And at some point, individually, socially as the church and the culture, that change would not be wise as we engage in ever greater degrees with the implications of the kingdom. But there is a challenge to change. Uh, I suppose some of us are more or less risk averse in this area. But there are legitimate questions to every uh, person looking over the edge of another change. First, the question is, what will it be like? And that's a fair question. Before we start to see things change, the question is, what will it be like? And then if it's interpersonal or, or it's personal inside my own heart and soul, the question is, who will I be? Who will I be when this change is complete or has begun? Will I lose myself in this transition and change? I want to suggest that the passage we have in front of us this morning shows us three responses to the call of change within God's people. First of all, there is a conservative response. And I mean this in the broadest sense of conserving and the lack of interest in changing. That in every culture, every time, every church, every church community, every denomination, there is a group of folks who want to see things maintained. And I'm not suggesting that that is, by definition, a sinful idea. But they know where they stand. They know the way things are. And there is a conservative notion of conserving what we have. There's also the calculating. If things are changing, let's not make a commitment too soon. Let's see which way it changes and figure out when's the right time to jump on that train. 
And so there's the calculating. And then, at least from a verbal sense, alliteration complete, there is a kingdom view. I know technically the last one's a K, but it sounds the same, right? Good old English. Kingdom. There is a kingdom perspective, one that is really quite different than the first two in its response. So let's look at these three responses. I want to suggest that in the passage you look at the response of the Sanhedrin in general, the Sadducees, that's a conservative response. They have power, they have a measure of authority, and they become jealous as the disciples grow in the crowd's appreciation. Their control, their position, their status is being changed and it's being threatened by the work of the disciples. Their popularity does support their position of power. And even though they were often unpopular with folks, that's why there was a couple of rebellions even cited in this passage, nonetheless, there was an understanding, as is true in most dictatorships and in most authoritarian governments and nations that understand sort of rather top-down authoritarianism, which some aspects of Judaism certainly did. They had Herod. They had the Sanhedrin. It was representative, but it was an oligarchy. But they knew that if they didn't have the masses, that if the masses were upset, that rebellion was always one missed bread shipment away. One inability to provide or to show their power, they were one misstep away from the mob sweeping them out and installing someone new. They were also deflecting. So there is a concern about loss of power because the disciples are undermining that by their works and by their preaching who Jesus is as the Christ. There's also a lack of ability to take responsibility, a lack of willingness to take responsibility for their own actions. Did you notice how down in verse 28, they're actually trying to deny that they had Jesus crucified? This is months after the crucifixion. These are the guys who were in the room on the night that the Lord was betrayed and they're telling the disciples, look, stop trying to pin that guy's blood on us. They did it. Now, technically, Pilate was the civil authority, but it was the Sanhedrin that Jesus appeared before. It was the same high priest. These are the people who helped get the crowd to yell, crucify him. And now, unnervingly, that same crowd is beginning to become winsomely drawn to the ministry of Jesus, and they're not stupid. And they understand that increasingly having Jesus' blood on their hands will probably be something that does not bode well for them in the standing, in their standing among the people. They're rejecting responsibility, and in verse 33, they burn with anger. We know that we have an unhealthy or unbiblical version of, conserv uh, of being conservative. When we see the change of God, when we see the challenges of the kingdom and we find ourselves fighting against or unwilling to acknowledge what God is doing. And this happens to us all the time. But it comes from an assumption that 
we really don't need to change. That things were good or are good the way they are if folks would just accept their place in this culture and society or church. Again, it's important to remember that the apostles are not called before the civil magistrates at this point. Right? They're at a presbytery meeting. They're standing before the church to give account for what they're doing. There is no way in which we can embody and engage and appreciate the rebellion that Christ brings when he brings life into death and be conservative in the way that the world is conservative, in conserving things the way they are. Because Jesus came to transform and to change the way things are. They, first and foremost, in our own hearts and lives. And I find that it doesn't matter where you stand politically or socially, we are all at some point exceedingly conservative in our own lives. What would it be like for me to change, to give up my anger, to give up my control through finance, to give up my control through image maintaining, which causes me to lie a lot about who I am, what I am? What would it mean to give those things up? I become incredibly conservative about protecting my own position and my own identity. The things I've become comfortable with that may not be good ideas. And yet I find that I am protecting and defensive of them. It's important to note that the apostles come to preach the good news to the Sanhedrin. It's truth in love. But nonetheless, what do they say? They say, you did kill him. But you know what? He's been installed at the right hand of the Father so that we, Israel, might be redeemed. He's preaching to them. He's not condemning. The apostles long for that change to happen in their brothers even as it's happening in their own lives. They preach the gospel in the face of the challenge, the gospel, truth, and love. It's not denying what has happened. You have an anger issue. You have an issue with Jesus' authority. You had an issue with it to such a degree that you nailed him to a tree in the fulfillment of prophecy, but God redeemed him, and that life is being offered to you for all who repent. They preach the gospel. But it's not just personal, and it certainly is in our own hearts. And what does it mean to embrace the change that the gospel brings in our own lives. But it's also social. There is an undermining of the social norms. It was interesting, I was talking to somebody, a, a, a friend of, of my wife's yesterday, uh, comes from the Mormon uh, religion. And we were talking about, and I don't know the history of this well enough, but that initially the Mormons accepted uh, black elders. But then because of the times in the United States, they decided not to because the culture was so segregated. Now, my interesting point in response to that was, because that's not surprising, is that interestingly enough in Scripture, we don't care what the culture says. So Paul's saying whether Jew or Greek, slave or free, 
all are one. In fact, there will be great social turmoil if you start unpacking the implications of everybody being created in the image of God, everybody but having power. It was a huge social upheaval in the way that women were treated. When Paul says, I don't command a widow to remarry, it's the first time in human history a religious leader ever told a woman that she didn't need a man to be significant. You can't find another religious text that would suggest such an outlandish thing. It's actually illegal in Rome not to be married and not to have the attempt to try and have children. And Paul doesn't care because change is coming. A change built on the reality of who we are and created in the image of God. There's no way in which God's people being changed by the reality of the gospel cannot affect culture and social change around them. Not necessarily by grabbing a placard and walking down the street, but certainly by the faithful living out of the gospel. Cultures change. We don't tolerate sexist speech. We don't worry about political correctness because we have the fruit of the Spirit, which means we're supposed to speak patience, kindness, gentleness, love, self-control. How much better a speech tempered by the fruit of the Spirit than any humanistic notion of politically correct. We want to respect people with our language. We should model it. Even as we say true things like, there is still sin. There has got to be change. We can't be those who conserve the way things are, particularly as they run contrary to the kingdom. But there's also calculating, right? And so this is Gamaliel, right? And he's brilliant. He sees the reality that sometimes there are these flash-in-the-pan revolts, and the worst thing you can do is react to them because it gives them credence. It gives them status. And so if we panic and we react to it, hey, easy, easy. If it's from human beings, it won't last long. Give it 5, 10, 15, 20 years. Some of the great heresies in the church lasted several hundred years. Marcionites were around for a long, long time. You can look that up. It's a fun Google search. There is a reality that the time and space that God functions in should cause us to not panic about change, but embrace it, but also give us the context that, you know what? It sounds like he's saying that truth will endure, that don't worry. But there's no evidence in the text that he was at all a believer or that he had any notion that Jesus was the Christ. He's just saying, look, let's hedge our bets. In my mind, this is the moderate. The moderate says, look, let's, we may need to change, but let's not rush to judgment. But if change goes and it starts heading in a direction, we should probably get on that train because that's going to be the new normal. We'll moderate between that which needs to change and that which would stay the same. That sounds like a good idea. He sounds reasonable. And in this situation, God uses it so the apostles only get a little bit of a beating and then get let go. But do you know who this fellow is? Do you know who one of his great disciples was? A guy named Paul, but earlier named Saul. And so whatever Gamaliel's position was about at that moment nixing 
the apostles, he was perfectly comfortable with the notion that one of his chief disciples began to not necessarily take out the top of the movement, but begin to oppress the rank and file. And Paul becomes, as Saul, aggressive in his persecution of the church. Moderation sounds like a good idea, but it's not neutral. It is simply trying to recognize where I can maintain my greatest safety and where things actually can be the most peaceful for me. It's the appearance of a willingness to change without the heart transformed to be changed by the gospel and by the Holy Spirit. And if we look back in church history, that is also a challenge that we face as believers. It's not just to conserve a position of status or power in a nation or in a country that we've seen one church after another fall prey to maintaining its status and its conservative position. It's not just that issue. It's also the position where we adopt changes that make us more palatable within the society and the culture but just as willing to silence those who oppose us or those whose changes would be too radical. And I want to suggest that it happens as individuals as well. That the challenge of being transformed by the Holy Spirit and what it means to be a new creature in Christ, there are ways in which we can stick our toe in to see if this is a better way to live. I'll give it a shot. If it's really a better way to live, let's try it for a few months or a few years. And if my life isn't better, then maybe I'll try something else, another doctrine, another church. If it works, I'll use it. However I define works, functions better in my life. I'm willing to change, but am I really willing to change? I say I'm willing to change, but when it gets down to the brass tacks of what it means to give up control, give up my heart to Jesus, do I find myself reserving those things that are so important to me? Whether they are wounds, whether they are victories that you think you earned, we hold on to them. And we bounce from community of faith to community of faith, theology to theology trying to look for that thing that works for us. But we're never changed. We find ourselves the same people 30 years down the road with the same fears, the same uh, soft points where if they're touched, they're sensitive and we react in fear or anger. We're the same 30 years down the road we were never angry, never consciously averse to change, and yet in the end we find we have seen little. The gospel changes us. The kingdom mindset is not just a willingness to change, it's a willingness to let somebody else do the changing. We're no longer in charge. So let's just run through this narrative what do the disciples look like? Well, first of all, they don't hide. I mean, what a nutty thing, right? The guy gets you out of jail, and it makes sense on one level. 
You get out of jail, uh, miraculously walking out. And I, I mean, I, just, I remember this story as a child. It's just an amazing story. And of course, the angel's response is, now great, don't, it's not get out of town. It's not run. It's, yeah, go back to the exact same place they rested you yesterday and do the same thing. Now, there should be a measure of confidence in that. Like, look, I got you out of jail once. Do you really think locked doors are an issue for God? No, they're not. And so the disciples are back in the same place the next day preaching the gospel. To some degree, everybody's surprised. Like, well, they got out. They should. How will we ever find them? Well, they're back in the temple courts. They're not hard to find. They're not hiding. There's a faithfulness in the gospel, a faithfulness to stay and preach even though it likely means a beating. It's not as if they have any hope that the people themselves that put them in jail have changed their minds about the preaching of Jesus as the Messiah, is the Messiah. They appeal to a higher authority, verse 29. Who do we listen to? You or God. How do we not preach the gospel? We find this interpersonally. We find this in our society. Who do I listen to? When we advocate for the poor, the widow, the orphan, the alien at the gate to be treated as fully human beings, which means some of them have made really bad decisions, which puts them in a place where their families and their lives are in chaos. Some of them are victims desperately trying to self-medicate, which has created its own issue. Wasn't a good idea, but it's complicated. Treat them with their full humanity, understanding the history and the background. As we advocate for the poor, the widow, the orphan, the alien at the gate, do we see them in the fullness of their humanity, not giving in to stereotypes, not giving in to cheap, uh, quick definitions of entire groups of people, not listing certain sins as the ones that are clearly outside of what God loves, and these sins over here are clearly ones that are acceptable. You know what I mean inside the church. We can always find those demon sins that we can say, that's the real sin out in the world. But then in our own hearts, we, we don't do business with our jealousy, with our gossip, with our anger, with our fears and needs to be loved. When we appeal to a higher authority, it means that when people are telling us we really shouldn't bring that topic up, it'll muddy the waters. Don't stir up the pot. Is that the wisdom of God? Or is it just the fear of change that people speak back to us when we raise those issues in our own hearts, when we disciple one another and we say, I've heard you many times speak of this fear you have. How have you given it to Christ? There are things you can do in cooperation with the Holy Spirit to see this area of your life healed. You don't have to be a victim of you. Do we speak truth because we follow a higher authority in those settings, be they formal or informal, when the truth of Christ spoken in love and gentleness and all humility still needs to be spoken into my heart and your heart. Or when we stand in formal situations and we're told that that is not the way that we're going to talk about this issue or that issue. 
do you mean that you're endorsing everything that group says? Well, heavens no. But are we advocating for the kingdom? Do we follow a higher authority? Verse 41, they rejoice in their suffering. The assumption is that when we speak truth in love in the world to one another and to the world around us, that there will be suffering. That when we face conservatism and calculating moderates, there is a certain point at which they will try and use force to stop us, to stop the work of the kingdom. Do we rejoice in our suffering? That's an amazing thing. I don't do that very well. But apparently, a mark of kingdom is to be able to rejoice in suffering, to be counted worthy, to suffer as Christ suffered because it's a means of loving the other. To bear the burden ourselves. And lastly, 42, the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Is the Messiah. It is the declaration of a new king and kingdom. Luke's language there is so clear that Jesus is the Messiah. And again, this is no less than Jesus is the one who took away our sins. They already talked about that and it's reiterated in this text that Jesus had accomplished this, that there might be repentance. And yet it is the proclamation that He is Messiah, which is King. Again, in our day and age, we have, we have often heard that in line with or almost exclusively around Jesus' death and resurrection so that He paid for our sins. That's not what king means for a first century Jewish person. It means there is someone else who is in charge that is higher than the Roman emperor, higher than the Sadducees. There is a new king who claims our loyalty and a new kingdom with laws and ethics and requirements and expectations for those who are citizens because this new country has an entirely different way of living. And Jesus as king is proof of it. And because of what he did, and because of what God did through him, and because of how we're healing people, all of this is indication that Jesus is the king. The one we've all been waiting for. The one who would bring real life and real peace and real change. Because change is needed. Change is needed in my heart and in your heart. Not that God would love me more, but that I might know what it is to be loved and enjoy it well. The world needs change, not because we're trying to bring it in line with a human standard, but because it was always designed to be a place that embodied the fruit of the Spirit, that embraced the harmony of what it means to be created in God's image and therefore caretakers and participators in creation. The kingdom is restoration. The kingdom is renewal. That means there must be change. So don't panic. Change is not by definition a bad thing. Change is necessary at some level and incrementally in all of us. And that because of God's Spirit, that change will only be done in a way that brings you life and light. Even if it brings suffering this side of glory, it brings life. It brings intimacy. It brings the joy of proclaiming Christ as King. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you be merciful to the preaching of your word. We ask, Lord God Almighty, that you would feed us as we come into communion, that you would remind us of what it means to know 
the safety of being transformed into your likeness. In Christ's name, amen. The ushers would come forward at this time. We'll take up the tithes and offerings. Again, an opportunity for us to give back a portion of what he generously poured out on us.